Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Well, welcome everybody to yet another episode of Nonprofit Everything. It's the podcast where you send us questions about nonprofit stuff, and Stacy and I do our best to answer them um, to the best of our ability, I guess. <laughs> we <laughs> try, that's for sure. We try, and sometimes we have to bring in experts to um, answer questions that we don't know. Um, this is a production of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, which, if you're not familiar with it, is the State Association of Nonprofits in Nevada. Uh, one interesting thing you'll find on their website right now, they just released the nonprofit compensation survey for 2018. So if you work for a nonprofit, if you are the board member of a nonprofit, if you are getting paid by a nonprofit and you want to make sure that you're being paid fairly or like as an average of what other nonprofits in Nevada are being paid, this is a pretty good investment. Um, there's a discount if you're an AN member. Um, if you're not an AN member, you should be an AN member because there's all kinds of other cool stuff that goes along with it. And with that, um, let's jump right in. I would like to know what factors you should look at to try to project cash flow. Recently, my issue has been that the money is promised, but we have government grants that are based on them reimbursing us after we've spent the funds. Mm. Then they are slow and I'm short on cash flow. Those are the worst. And that, you know... You hate to tell people that, but that's the, the worst part about giving getting government grants is so many of them are effectively contracts. Absolutely. And they're going to pay you after you've proven to them that the work is done, which is if, if you tried to run, um, someone wanted to run their business like that, they would go out of money. They would go out of business so fast. You just run out of money right. because it's a terrible thing. And the, the more work you do, the better you do it, the faster you do it, the more you spend, the more they have to pay you later. And they send their people to come and argue about every little technical detail that you did wrong and then end up paying you, you know, three quarters of what they originally promised and then get really grumpy about it. It's, It's, and then you have to pay for an expensive, you know, if you, if you do enough of it, then you have to have a a special audit um, that that's even more expensive. And Um, breaking out in hives just as we're talking. It's so ugly. Like government grants are like, some people think, you know, you you go to a board meeting board, like, well, aren't there any government grants? You just want to like, like, maybe I'll just punch you in the face. Exactly. <laughs> Did you really just say that? Do you want to be in my shoes for a day? <laughs> like, yeah. We're going to have to be way bigger and way more complicated before we even get there. Um, so, yeah. Um, project- so, yes. Projecting cash flow is, is really just a matter of sitting down with a whiteboard or a piece of paper and trying to figure out when the money goes out and when the money comes back in. Um, government grants complicate that because the money all goes out first. Um, the good news about that is it gives you an opportunity to talk to other donors about, you know, look at all this good stuff we're doing. We're actually getting a bunch of money from the government, but they're jerks and they pay us in this really <laughs> weird way. Um, so, so we would love to have some money up front. Um, so yeah, as, as far as putting the cash flow together, that's just the process. The process is knowing when it goes in and when it goes out. The hard part is trying to remember everything, right. um, especially, especially if you don't keep perfect records. Like if you keep really good records, you just look at last year and you say, here's kind of what happened, what came in. It's just like you do with your personal finances. Like my, 
I don't know, my car insurance surprises me every year. It's like December. I'm like, ah, car insurance. Ugh, like, <laughs> worst. I know. <laughs> and I, you know. And car I'm, registration. I should remember. Any of that stuff. I know. It's, I know. It's been the exact same way since I was 18. Um, I don't know why it surprises me now. <laughs> Mental um, block. <laughs> yeah, let's block it out. Um, so, so that's the, if you can go through and keeping track of those things and figuring out when the money comes out. Um, and then you want to make sure that um, if there are negative numbers, so you, you, you you have to figure out sort of generally you pay your bill, you, you put it together monthly. So, so you do 12 periods. And if any one of those periods, the number at the bottom is negative, which means you have to spend more than you've got in your account plus what you're bringing in, there are a couple options. One is to try to find donors that will help you with that. Another one is to talk to a bank because a bank will give you a loan, a short-term loan. Um, they call it a line of credit. And pretty much all nonprofits, if you're, if you're big enough to even be considering this problem, you need to talk to your bank about a line of credit. Absolutely. Um, Many of them, because you're a nonprofit, if you're a good nonprofit and you're doing good work, you can get a line of credit that doesn't actually cost you anything to open. Um, so if, uh-huh. you're, if your banker yeah, tells you that's awesome. not the case, keep talking to other bankers because there's lots of them. And somebody will finally go, you know what, we can do that for you. So what it does is it provides, you know, say you say as you're looking at this, you're going to spend a half a million dollars um, out of your own pocket to get this government program that you're not going to actually get funded for six months later. So as you look at the numbers and one of those dips and it dips to, you know, $125,000, you might open a line of credit for $200,000. You pay interest on it. The interesting thing about that is that that interest can actually be considered something that you can get reimbursed for. Hmm. That can be part of your overhead because you have to do it. Through the government grant? Okay. That's great. You can actually make sure that you're including that because if you didn't, I mean, technically, if you didn't have that government grant, you wouldn't actually have to go in the hole, which means you wouldn't have to have a line of credit. Absolutely. So that interest payment can be part of that. Just make sure that you've got it baked in and that you've asked permission, you know, always ask permits. And the, you know, the the old adage is never ask permission, only ask forgiveness is the absolute opposite when it comes to government (laughs) grants. You have to ask permission before you spend the money. If you spend it and then ask permission, they're going to say, no, you already did it. So you actually have to ask first, make sure that it's totally okay, make sure it's totally documented, and then make sure that you put it in properly. Um, So so you can get a line of credit that will kind of help you float. You pay interest on that. You pay it back. Once the money comes in, the bank's happy, the government's happy, you're happy, and you're done. I actually think a cash flow analysis, I don't... A lot of nonprofits, I don't, you know, at least small ones, right, struggle with this. Um, I don't think there's always enough. They don't, there's not enough hours in the day to do everything they need to do. So that obviously gets put on the back burner and that's when they run into problems. Probably not the ones that are dealing with government grants, but still, I love the idea of mapping out, like you said, on a whiteboard, sort of what does the year look like? And okay, we're having a fundraiser, fundraising event this month. What do we project that is going to come in, you know, and when, when is it all going to come in? And, and I think that, um, it's a good planning tool, um, right, that sort of supports and goes in line with if you do have a strategic plan or sort of your plan for the year of what you're, what you're going to do. So I think it's a cool opportunity to even educate other staff, like sit down and, you know, maybe it's a staff meeting because I don't think staff and others always appreciate all the ins and outs of this kind of stuff and realize why you as the ED or the person in charge of finance or whomever, wherever you sit on the org chart, right? What, what's keeping you up at night? And I mean, it's, it's, it's really kind of a learning experience, I think, which is super cool. I know I went through it once and I was like, wow, like I learned so much here that I didn't know before just, understanding all the nuances of when money comes in and goes out and why we need a constant, you know, is there a way to have a constant revenue stream? Yeah. So there's one thing that you touched on that, that I think trips up a lot of people too is, so you're having an event. Um, how much are you going to bring in? Yeah. 
and, and you don't know. Like no. you, you can look at what happened last year, but this year might be different. You know, you didn't last year you had Michael Bublé headlining. <laughs> this year you have like a guy that does tricks with a dog. Um, so you don't know that you might have the same <laughs> number of people not. coming. Yeah. Um, so so those kinds of things are really complicated to try to put together. They're there are two tricks that I think everybody should use when they're putting together a projection like that, so especially for fundraising. Um, one is to like put a likelihood on every single gift that you're putting in. So if, if you, th- you think there's a 75% chance of getting to $100,000, you just multiply those two things together and you get 75000 And that, that gives you sort of a weighted average of all of the revenue that's coming in. If that doesn't make sense, I'll maybe put up an example that you can click to a link that you can talk, you can actually understand that without me just trying to babble <laughs> about it. Um, the second thing you can do that, that sort of strengthens those percentages and those amounts is get as many brains in the room as you can to kind of hash those out. So if it's one person making it up, um, you're going to be close. If you've got everybody in the organization talking about, like, I think the percentage is 60%, I think the percentage is 80%, and once you've kind of haggled it down to where you think it belongs – um, that's going to be way more close, way closer right. to the actual number that you're going to end up with. It's sort of the wisdom of crowds. It's sort of been mathematically it. proven years and years and years that, that the more people try to come up with a likelihood of something happening, if you get a lot of people together, they usually come up with a number that's very, very close. So you don't have to worry about like, you know, what do we think? And that doesn't weigh all on your shoulders too, yeah, right? It's yeah. Not, yeah. More, if you get all your board members together to sit down to go through this process, first of all, it's a fun thing to, to get your board members to say like, okay, so who can I ask for money? Right. I think I can get $1,000 out of this person. So what's the likelihood? A uh, 50% chance of getting $1,000, put them down for 500 bucks. Absolutely. Um, so so that's that's one interesting way to do it, to be able to come up with those those revenue numbers that aren't like, we're definitely getting this. And there's a more formal t- um, term for this. You may know it, Andy, and I'm losing it right now, but some people do, you know, don't even look. We talked about donors helping fill in the gaps, but you could also go to a donor and say, I need an interest-free loan from you, right? Like that's what the request is. And I'll pay, we'll pay you back when mm-hmm. we get the money. But like, we need to figure out like, what is the, can we set up an arrangement like that, that you're like our interest-free bank to some degree while we're waiting for some of these gaps. So it's not an outright donation, but it still helps you through the tough times. Yeah, absolutely. And foundations can do that too. They're called program-related investments. Yeah. So sometimes they abbreviated as PRI, PRI just to make yeah. it more complicated, right? Um, so, so a foundation might be able to help you with that too, is like, you know, they could give you $2 million and you're paying them um, 2% interest on that $2 million, um, whereas a bank would be a higher interest rate. And, and they're, they're fulfilling their mission by providing that capital to you because they're a foundation. They need to do those kinds of things. They consider it a program-related investment. It's kosher for them. Um, everybody wins. And then Final thought on this, and this is coming, and I want you to push back, Andy, if I'm just sort of being way too conservative with it, but I'm more of a, I take more of a conservative approach with everything with money. So I feel like from a cash flow standpoint, you do your best to try to be accurate. And yet I still think being a bit conservative is probably on the safer side. Is, is that fair? Or would you push back and say, no, don't be like conservative, meaning, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, if I really think I'm going to bring in 80000 and I have a lot of math to it, I might it might say, okay, 70 or 75 just to give myself a little cushion in case that doesn't happen. Is that is that even the right thing to do, or would you say no? Really bad idea, Stacey. I, I think, I mean, this is a great question for a development person, but I think in my experience, so former CFO experience, working with development people, they are sort of inherently um, realistic. So I don't say conservative, I say okay. they're realistic. So they don't, you know, every once in a while you get somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and they come in and they're like, we're going to raise a jillion yeah. dollars. And <laughs> so you know that that person's wrong, but yeah. the, 
most of the time, um, if they say, I think I can get, you know, I've got a 75% chance of getting $100,000 out of this people, this people, they're usually right. Yeah. Um, because they're, they've done it for a long time. They kind of have a sense of, of what the answer is going to be. I mean, sometimes you miss, but then that's the whole point of using those percentages. It's like, uh, you know, we, here's one that we didn't expect at all. Um, I, I don't know, my, maybe I've been lucky, but in my experience, like, they've always been really accurate. Like development folks are really accurate, not high, not low. Like you miss, every time you miss a little right, bit. Right, You course. miss a little bit high, a little bit low, but nobody's ever just like wildly wrong. Well, because in an ideal world, right, they've primed the pump to the point where they should know what the donor's capable of giving and will give. So, yeah, yeah good point. have yet another silent auction coming up and I feel like our frequent donors are getting tired of us. Is there a way to spice up our silent auction requests? So it sounds like the you're, you're, people you're asking to give you things are tired of giving you things. That's what it sounds like because you're having lots of silent auctions because your entire fundraising plan is based on events. That sounds like First of all, that's a terrible idea. Right. <laughs> Don't do <laughs> it's it. It's like the Don't definition of eggs and putting all of your eggs in one yes. basket, right? Um, so I think one thing that I've seen, so to answer the question, one thing that I've seen to, to maybe get some new things is to make sure that you've got a committee involved so that you're not having the same staff ask the same people over and over again, because again, it's all about relationships, right? It's who you know and who you can comfortably ask. Um, so if your organization has a, a committee involved where they could then sort of help you find things, because they all have people that they know and they can, they can ask, you know, can you donate? gift certificates or garbage or whatever it is that you put in silent auctions. Right. I think that might be one way. Right. Well, and you know what else I'm thinking? I mean, I think that's absolutely an idea, but I also am thinking sometimes we, okay, so I'm, I'm guilty of this, right? I've done something, let's say so many times that I'm tired of it. And I project, I project my own being tired of doing something on the donor when that may not even exist or on the other party. Oh. Right. So like, I think it's almost like when they say, they seem like they're getting tired of us. I mean, I think it's almost, I mean, unless they've directly said, okay, this is the last time, or I'm so annoyed with you coming to me again. Like, I think in some ways it's a check-in with that relationship saying, has this gotten to be too much? And, you know, or could you, you know, we want to give you a break this year. So could you refer to us to a friend of yours or a colleague that maybe is someone so we don't have to bother you again, but, but realize from like a company perspective, it's a potential marketing opportunity. So who knows if they're getting tired of it? I mean, like, I think you've got to have that direct conversation unless they've given you every signal that they are tired and, like, want to stop. Like, I think you have to sort of just have that dialogue. I, at least that's what I would do. Because if I'm sensing that, it's probably something I need to figure out. Is that going on in my own head or is that actually how the person feels? That's a really good point. I think because the what you're going to decide whether or not it was a good silent auction item is whether or not somebody bid on it. Right. right? And not whether or not you feel like it's a good thing. Yeah. Some of the weirdest things are the things that go for the most money I've noticed. Oh, they are, right? <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. And I think the whole fund to need, you know, I think we've seen some of that, but some organizations that are getting away from just, because, you know, let's be honest, like, are getting away from just the same old packages, the same old shows and entertainment we've all seen. Like, I also think there's such a thing as like, okay, maybe it's not getting as many tangible items and it's more like, okay, it's a silent auction item to fund a need. So we're going to start the bid at this and, or for $25 for everyone who signs up, you get to give us one counseling session for the people we're serving or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like, so maybe there's ways to also take some of the pressure off of 
of everybody, right? And and do more of that and get more in touch with your mission. Yeah. Myself and the other co-founders have some time constraints that are hindering our nonprofit focus. I wanted to see if there was an alternative to winding down. Is it possible to pause a nonprofit for some period of time? If so, could we skip board meetings, annual reports, et cetera, until we resumed? Technically, no. So there's no way to pause anything. Um, If you don't do your paperwork, so if you don't file with the Secretary of State, if you don't get your business license, if you don't file a 990 or a 990N with the IRS, um, after a certain period of time, like three years after three years, you just have to start all over again when you, they don't, they don't, they don't tell you you can just start it up with the same number. You have to go through the entire process and start everything over again. Um, that said, um, your bylaws are the, what sort of describes the kinds of things that your organization needs to do. So if you're having monthly board meetings right now, that's because you decided to have monthly board meetings. It has nothing to do with what what any regulatory body is telling you you're required to do. So you can you know keep everything above board, make sure everything is kosher, have one board meeting a year if you want to, just make sure that that's what your bylaws say. Make sure you fill out the Secretary of State stuff. Make sure you file the 990N every year. It's going to have zeros on it. So it's going to take you 15 seconds. Um, and, and then you're, you're keeping everything current and ready to go. And when you guys are finally, you know, you have the attention back or you find this magic funding source or something to make <laughs> everything start again, then, yeah, you can just pick up where you left off. But, yeah, there's, no, unicorn. yeah yes. there's no pause, unfortunately. Well, and I also think there's something to be said about, you know, it's interesting because this question talks about we have some time constraints. So is there a way to engage other people perhaps, right? Like maybe there's an opportunity to engage others that are passionate about this mission that don't have as many time constraints. Or if you do have money that you could even hire someone in a small level to help keep it moving forward. Because I think what's sad about this is even if they were to cut back, like you said, and do one meeting a year or whatever, you know, do some of the bare bones basics, you lose a ton of momentum, right? And it is going to be hard. If you have time constraints now, that's just going to get harder the more this organization grows. So I think there's a little bit of kind of a, you know, we got to talk about the elephant in the room. Are we all committed enough to this? Or is it every time our schedules get busy, we're going to be like, all right, yeah, we got to go on, you know, go on a pause or do the bare minimum. I mean, it just, that, that's not sustainable and that's yeah. not healthy for anybody. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like, and, and I've noticed with, with very small nonprofits that don't have any staff, um, if you have just the bare minimum number of board members and nobody's the impetus, like usually what, what happens is one of the one of the three people is like super into it and does everything and yeah. then burns out because they're not yeah. getting any help. Absolutely. Right. So so, you know, I don't know where that that question is coming from, but I think your point is really good that if you can't if you're if you're too busy to do it, like, why are you even bothering. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? Just, just fold it up. And like 10 years from now, if you feel like you've got that urge to do it again, go find another organization that's doing similar work and help them or get a fiscal sponsor or, yes. you know, there's plenty of other ways to do it that don't involve paperwork, really. I was actually, it's funny, it, you mentioned fiscal sponsor and that's what was going in my head thinking, this is a great opportunity. And I think, or I, I would love more people to maybe try out a nonprofit first through a fiscal sponsorship, right? So like, you know, to sit there and say, okay, I don't have to deal with, I'm going to pay somebody a fee to deal with all of the admin and stuff I don't want to do and the the accounting and all the stuff I don't want to do for this. Um, Give me that, you know, the legal umbrella to do this. But 
it allows you a little more flexibility than I think it does when when you've gone out and done the whole ball of wax and have your own 501c3. I think this just makes it, I think you have almost a moral obligation to you either are serious about it or you're not. Yeah. It reminds me of what Bob said a couple of weeks ago, which was, you know, people come into him and they've like, I've already hired my attorney and I've got yeah. the 1023 done. And Bob's like, that's not where you start. And I, I think that's, I mean, maybe it's too inexpensive to start the nine nine to start the ten twenty three and to get your five hundred one c three. The fact that they made an easy version that you can do really fast made yeah. it so a lot of people kind of just jump in with both feet, um, not realizing it that it's going to be complicated and, and take a lot of work. Um, I don't know. I think the fiscal sponsor. I think the resistance on fiscal sponsorship is number one. People don't know about it. People of don't course. know that that's an option. They just figure I'm going to start a nonprofit and then they Google nonprofit. How do I start a nonprofit? Right. right? And then then they go. Um, <laughs> so the first answer should be don't. Yes. Like maybe <laughs> consider a fiscal sponsorship. Absolutely. Like, um, to get your to get your feet wet, make sure you understand how everything works, and then kind of get a you know better experience in the marketplace. Um, I think the other challenge is that there's not a whole lot of um, there's not a penalty for failure. In a nonprofit. So if you start it, you spend a little bit of money, you get the board together, and then you just kind of go, yeah, that was harder than we thought it was, and it just kind of blows away. Whereas if you're starting a business or there's something where you've got a bunch of cash involved, that's like the, you know, I don't want to lose money, so I'm going to keep working Absolutely. on it. You know, I'm going to have to get an actual job if this isn't going to work out. Um, fiscal sponsorship, because a lot of times that takes money up front, that might be one of the barriers is because, you know, if you talk to somebody that's going to be a fiscal sponsor for you and they're going to say, yeah, we can do that for you. But it's going to cost this amount of money right. for us to do the accounting and things like that. I think that's another barrier. It's like actually cheaper to get a 1023 done. It is, sadly. Um, and, you know, I don't think people like to lose the control. And we know a fiscal sponsorship, depending on, you know, I, I mean, oftentimes you're saying, okay, I get to advise or I get to, depending on the arrangement, right, I get to recommend that these are the things we do. But if you're using someone else's 501c3 and they're your fiscal sponsor, you're People don't want to lose that control. Yeah, and, and a, a good fiscal sponsor will make you do things you don't necessarily Absolutely. want to do. They'll make you keep track of stuff that you have no intention of keeping track of because it's their 501c3 on the line and not yours. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a tougher sell, but it's a good option. I agree. Okay, Stacy, our volunteer manager resigned and we're looking to fill the position. Before we do so, we're debating where it lives on the org chart. Does this position belong under programs, development, or somewhere else? And my answer is, what is the end goal of that position? What, what are you trying to accomplish with that position? Because I think that dictates where it belongs, right? Because you see some people who have volunteer programs, and it's really a way to help provide extra human resource capacity to their staff. Mm -hmm. And I've seen those volunteer positions can live under even HR or operations in some way. And then you see others where perhaps it's really um, kind of more of, we want to make more programmatic impact and that's where the success and how that position is going to be measured. So it lives under programs. And then right. you've got others, right? That it's like, okay, we really want all our volunteers to become donors, which we all would love to, right? And right. there's obviously a huge opportunity for that. So then it lives under development. So I think the first question is stepping back and saying, what does success look like for this position, right? And then then figuring out where it lives. And, you know, I would advocate, I know this doesn't exist often, and you probably have to be a pretty large organization to do this. But I think I love it when you see organizations that raise a volunteer position to the level of sort of other other manager and director levels realizing it's kind of cross-functional and can serve all those purposes, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it could do all of those things that I just said. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that, that raises even more questions. I was like trying to think how I was going to help answer this question. And then you just raised another one, which I think is even more interesting is the, the sorry person who asked the question. We're going to ask, answer a different one. <laughs> We're going to go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. So like the, in, in lots of organizations, I've noticed that they get stuck on, so you've got the executive director or the CEO, so you've got that top person, then you've got the next level, and there's usually somebody in charge of finance, right. so like a CFO, right. somebody in charge of development most of the time, mm-hmm, yeah. and there's somebody that's in charge of like programs. So that's kind of the stack. The, exactly. so the one, and then there's three underneath exactly. it. But in an organization, depending on the organization, there are other activities that are just as important to have a direct line of contact with the executive director. Totally. Um, and it's always super challenging because I don't know if it's those three people like have being in charge of everybody else, but it's always sort of super challenging to bring more people up to that top level. Yes. Um, so in the volunteer one, for example, I think, I mean, it, it's an ugly answer, but the answer is it depends, which yes. is pretty much exactly what you said. It depends on what your organization does. Um, because if you look at some organizations, the volunteers are really there to support fundraising. You know, um, some of the volunteers may be there to support fundraising. Some are doing programs. Some are doing other things. So they can't go anywhere. I've, one organization I was at, um, I had a couple of executives sort of fighting over who was going to take control of the volunteer department. Ugh. It had been under development for years, and they wanted to move it under programs because programs had more stuff for them to do. So they they kind of the, so the program chief program person grabbed them, like mm. managed a coup, right? And got the development people over. And after about six months, like ran screaming out of the building with his hair on fire because he really didn't want to have to deal with the volunteers. Uh. It was just too much people for him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like dealing with <laughs> that people factor. stuff, like yes. having to like manage the people. Like he wanted the work out of them, but he didn't want to have to deal with all of the humans that were involved in getting the work done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a kind of a double-edged sword in that situation. Uh, I I like it under the development side because my opinion about volunteers a lot of times is they may be doing the work for you. It may be important for them doing the work for you. But one of the other reasons that they're there is so that they can see what an amazing job you're doing so that when they get a direct mail piece, that they're more likely to respond to it. So they're, it's that sort of pipeline into a long-term donor. I, I uh, read an article the other day that talked about how volunteers within an org, like volunteers are 10 times more likely to give to that organization. And I didn't realize it was that high of a stat, but I, I believe it, right? They see and touch the work all day long. So yeah. I tend to lean in your, in your position too about sort of more towards development. But I also am like, I'd love to raise the profile and to all the volunteer professionals, uh, managers, coordinators out there listening to this, um, I, props to you because I think sometimes you are, it's almost like, I, I consider volunteers almost like this, they fall into the same trap marketing people do where everybody needs a piece of you right. for different things, right? And right. it's like, how do we elevate that, that it's important enough that perhaps it's on, it's not just three people on that org chart right under the executive director, but there's also a volunteer position that's up there because it's critical. It's right. critical to an organization. Right. And then the the other the other way to fix that too is not necessarily to make sure that it's elevated, but to make sure that there's a direct line of communication. Yes. And that this person's getting the amount of support that they need. So, so if your title is volunteer coordinator and there's nobody above you with the title volunteer anything, right. take a copy of this podcast <laughs> and make sure that your ED listens yes. to it. Because you need to have much more visibility because you're more important to the organization than you may be getting paid for, number Absolutely. one, and that people may recognize. Um, I feel the same way about IT. Yeah, um, yeah, is a lot true. of times 
a lot of time IT used to be, you know, it was the one nerdy dude who sat in the corner and you asked them the questions because you didn't know why your mouse stopped moving, right? And yeah. he'd say reboot it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now, like, there is literally no system anywhere in any nonprofit that doesn't have some sort of technology component attached to it everywhere. Totally. And so everybody needs a piece of the IT department's time, and and the IT group needs to be able to have some sort of control over what's happening. So if you're building, um, if you're building a new building, um, you might not think one of the first people I need to talk to is the IT person because that IT person is going to tell you like, well, if you want to have wireless everywhere, you're going to have to talk to us when you're doing the architecture stuff. Right. You know, they have to be involved in all of those high-level decisions, and they're not just a, like, low-level troubleshooter. And volunteers is pretty much the same thing. Absolutely. All righty, that's a wrap for today, and we're so glad you joined us. Thanks so much. As a friendly reminder, we love to hear from you because you are the ones that make this interesting, right? We're here to uh, answer anything and everything on your mind about nonprofits, and uh, we we have gotten a lot of great questions, and we just encourage you to keep sending those in, nonprofiteverything.com, and uh, thanks, as always, to Anne for hosting this great resource. Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits is uh, a wonderful uh, resource for nonprofits in the community, and we encourage you to go check them out, and then, of course, check out the podcast, nonprofiteverything.com, and send us your questions. Thanks. Mm-hmm.